sometimes just a little bit of conversation, half an hour, 45 minutes, can really get the thought, thought train going again. And it can be hard to settle. And the prospect of stabilizing the attention in Rigpa starts to seem a little more ambitious than it was before. But tomorrow we'll get the bigger challenge, taking the practice back into our daily life. So that's what I want to talk about tonight. The microphone is on. The switch is on. You can't hear me? Maybe, Quilly, you could turn it up just a little. As we prepare to take the practice back into daily life, how's that for volume? Still more? As we prepare to take the practice back into daily life, we hope Sharda can hear. I think one of the big questions that comes up uh, is around a feature I want to illustrate by, by a story. I work out uh, at a gym regularly when I'm in town. That may not be apparent from my physique, but... I, I do just to try to stay healthy, although I've never been into body sculpting particularly. (laughs) So while I was working out at the gym, there were these two teenage guys who came in. There are a lot of young young men at uh, the gym, and some of them are very, very buff. It seems to be a thing among this generation to look really good. So they were working out, and I was working out on a set of weights near them, and I overheard their conversation. And they were scrawnier than I am. I mean, I've put on weight since I was an adolescent. They were more like me when I was an adolescent. But they were supporting each other and spotting each other and really putting a lot of effort into what they were doing. There was a guy at the gym working there named Lance. And Lance was formerly a competitor in the Mr. America contest. And there was a photo of him when he was at his peak of development, and he really looked like you know one of those Arnold Schwarzenegger look-alikes in his peak, really muscled all over, oiled, and everything. And these two kids were talking about him, and they said, "Wow, did you see Lance the other day in here? He was on the he was on the press, and he was pressing 515 pounds. I mean, that's extraordinary." You know, I can probably press at my peak like 135 or something. <laughs> and they were watching Lance press 515 pounds, and they were, they were totally in awe that that was possible for him. And that's what I tuned into in their discussion, is how impressed they were at Lance's level of development. The fact that that's what they aspired to was going to condition their effort they were going to make the kind of effort that would lead in that direction, even if they never got to a Mr. America contest. They saw that that's where their training could go. And they aimed there. Whether they reached it or not, that's really what inspired them and motivated them to put in a lot more effort than I was putting in. So I think this question of aim and motivation is really central when we talk about taking the practice back into daily life maybe even more than it is when we're actually on a retreat and we don't have so much else to do. Because if our aim is high, that will really fuel the right kind of effort 
on our part. And we could even say the right balance between effort and non-effort on our part. But it will inspire what we do when we get home, when we leave here. Just as an example, Rinpoche the other day mentioned his brother, Minya Rinpoche, who carries a mala around and makes sure that he turns to the nature of mind a hundred times a day when he's in a daily life situation. So, for those of you who just went through maybe a little bit of conversation and then tea, any idea how many times you turned? Were you noticing? I did it on a mala today. You did? Mm-hmm. What did you get to, Leslie? <laughs> well, I stopped counting at a certain point because I had to wash dishes and I couldn't work very well. <laughs> but I, I, it's 108, but I only did a short period of time, really. It was like through a... Mm-hmm. I did the break of silence, though. Excellent. Gold star. Hundred eight times. I couldn't really do it while talking. I mean, yeah, yeah. But, but while quiet after and in between. Yeah. She said it's difficult to do while talking. I think that's true. It's easier to do while listening. So you can start to develop the practice first while listening. So that's very good. So even in this supportive setting, I'm sure you got a sense how easy it is for the mind to wander. Even when we've just come out of doing formal practice, and it's hard to remember to tune back in to that factor. Are we checking in? So the motivation in daily life needs to be high so that we have this interest in continually checking. Where is nature of mind? Am I in touch with mind essence? Am I in touch with emptiness? Because Amala looks a little bit odd in daily life in the West, uh, some friends of mine gave Joseph Goldstein, who's a colleague and longtime teacher of mine, a more Western artifact to do the same thing. It's a counter that you use, like when you're counting people through a turnstile. <laughs> so that you can slip in your pocket. And every time you turn back to nature of mind, you click it once, and at the end of the day, there's your count. <laughs> so I think we should probably buy a bunch of these for the bookstore. And it, well, I haven't looked yet. I'm, that's my first project when I leave here. I'm going to look at athletic places and then uh, Office Max. Office Max, thank you. Fifteen bucks, Office Max. Thank you. You aren't on the payroll, are you? No. Thank you. The good thing about Rigpa practice is that it's really well suited for daily life. I've been working with it for a number of years. I've worked with mindfulness for a number of years. They're both excellent. But there's something about Rigpa that's more um, immediate in any situation. It doesn't matter what you're doing. Uh, Mindfulness, we can find objects also, but the objects keep changing. If you're sitting, it's one thing. If you're walking, it's another. If you're working at a desk, it might be another. With Rigpa, it's just one practice. Look and notice the nature of mind. And it works very well in daily situations. I hope you've been experimenting with this during your time here. So its uh, practice is very well suited for taking back into daily life. The trouble is we have to remember. And as someone said, it's not hard to be aware. What's hard is to remember to be aware. This is really true. It's hard to remember to be aware. But as we develop that, and the counter can be a very good reminder, you say, what's that thing in my pocket? It will remind you to turn and notice.
So please try to fill in in your daily activity. Also in your daily life, there really is no substitute for formal practice. There's no substitute for putting your rear on a cushion and just devoting yourself 100% to meditation or non-meditation as the case may be. Because the intention is not divided in that time or is not meant to be divided. Of course, our intentions go in a lot of directions, but we only have one primary intention, which is to notice. And with that wholeheartedness, it's much easier to notice when we're doing formal practice in our daily life. How much should we do? I was just reading Rinpoche's book, Carefree Dignity, and I was very interested to find that he recommends in there, page 86 if you're interested, two hours a day. Two hours a day. This is also what we would suggest in a Vipassana retreat, or what I would suggest at the end of a Vipassana retreat, if you can do it. When I first connected with meditation practice, I was in my uh, 20s, and I was single, didn't have a family or anything, and I could do that. So I got very into uh, the practice early on, and I did my two hours a day pretty religiously for many years. Some, Some years I did three hours a day. It's harder. A a lot of you are um, older than your 20s. You may have uh, family responsibilities and other obligations. It's not so easy when you have more responsibility. So see what's possible for you. You know, maybe it's 30 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes before you go to bed. Maybe it's 40 minutes in the morning and that's it. Do what you can. Every little bit helps. No moment will be wasted often talk to people at the end of retreat who have heard this very good advice a number of times. <laughs> and I uh, say, yeah, it sounds really good, but I just can't do it. I just don't have the discipline to have a steady daily practice. Then what do you suggest? So then we have one last resort for people. Make the vow that once a day you will assume the meditation posture. There's no excuse for not because there's no time commitment. It's not for 40 minutes or an hour. It's just saying once a day, I'm going to get to my cushion in front of my altar and I'm going to sit down. Once you're there, if it's not uh, a timely point, you get up after a minute or five minutes. But I'll bet you that most of the time you sit down, you're going to find it feels really good to sit down and you're going to want to stay longer. The hard thing is just making that shift of mindset coming out of the busyness and how terribly important all our tasks are into letting go of that whole string of assignments. That's the hard part. So if you can do that and there's no reason not to, you'll be in your place and I bet you'll stay a while. So that's the vow to take if a daily routine isn't easy for you. I also really encourage everyone to continue to do silent meditation retreats. There's also no substitute for the deepening that comes through the silence and the continuity of attention. You look at the the great masters from this lineage and you see that. Tolka Ergen's biography was recently published. It's called Blazing Splendor. It's a really wonderful book. He was born in the old Tibet and he tells stories of the old masters that he knew when he was a young man and, and an early practitioner and they're really uh, amazing. Talk about the magic of Tibet. The book really captures that flavor. 
Well, in the preface, one of the authors, I can't remember who, that was summing up his biography, mentioned that Tolka Ergen Rinpoche had spent half his life, half his adult life in retreat. That's what it takes to get that level of realization. Dilgo Kense Rinpoche, the head of the Nyingma lineage, along with Dujum Rinpoche, when they were both still alive, spent 22 years in retreat, starting from, I think, age 13. He, he left his house when he was 13 years old and had a very strong motivation to be in retreat and went off into years of solitary retreat from uh, the age of his teenage years. So one week a year compared to that might not be too onerous. I would say aim for at least a week a year of silent retreat. If you connect and find it useful, aim for a month. You know, if a week is deepening, a month is much, much more so. Because we spend, if you look back, honestly, we spend the first three days just getting here. After three days, the practice starts to deepen. And then today, when did you start thinking about going home? Probably pretty early in the morning. So there were about two days in the retreat where you were settled. This is just my estimation, but this is kind of a rule of thumb. So in a month's retreat, you take out the three days at the beginning and maybe two days at the end, and then you have 25 days where you're settled. And the deepening just continues, so that's highly recommended. Then somebody asked today or yesterday, wow, I really do like this Dzogchen practice. Where can I go do a month's retreat in this style? I know that Lama Suryadas offers a month Dzogchen retreat on the East Coast. I think it's every summer. But of course, our connection is with uh, Sogni Rinpoche. There are other wonderful Dzogchen teachers around. However, in my experience, most of them require that you have completed or have at least started and made a commitment to complete the Nundro, the preliminary practices that uh, Gerardo mentioned earlier, which may take four or five years to complete. It's a very high bar for entrance. Again, Sotni Rinpoche is very rare in being so generous to offer these teachings to people who haven't done that kind of prerequisite. There are not many open month-long Dzogchen retreats, is the point. I asked Gerardo, I asked Rinpoche today at lunch. They both just shrugged. One thing that I did, I think I mentioned this in an earlier talk, I went over to Kathmandu one year and I practiced uh, near Rinpoche's monastery. Today he has 20 single rooms for Westerners to stay in. So you can actually stay at his monastery and if he's in town, you can see him from time to time for interviews. So that's actually one of the better situations if you want guidance to do this practice in an ongoing way. It's hard to find a qualified guide that you can be near for an extended period of time. You also notice that the great teachers move around a lot because everybody wants them to come teach. So it's tough. It's, it's tricky. But certainly for the Vipassana practitioners, of course you don't need to just think, I'm only going to practice under a qualified Dzogchen master or I'm not going to practice at all. A month of doing Samatha practice is far more valuable than zero time spent doing Dzogchen practice. So, please continue to use the facilities of Spirit Rock and IMS and, and other places to deepen your practice. Rinpoche has talked about, and I, I would also outline 
especially for the Vipassana practitioners, four main areas of practice that in your lifetime you ought to aim to achieve some competency in. And those are the basic Vipassana practice that's characterized by choiceless attention so that you can be mindful, fully present with any phenomenon that arises at any sense door and not lose your awareness. Some degree of loving-kindness familiarity and doing intensive loving-kindness is an important uh, aspect of practice. We do seven-day retreats and month-long retreats for people in loving-kindness. Some degree of samatha practice to find out if you have the capacity to do jhana practice, to find out if you have the capacity to enter absorptions. And that's accomplished either through the loving-kindness practice in a long retreat or the breath meditation in probably a month-long retreat. And finally, now that you've had this introduction, some integration of a non-dual perspective. And I personally think that Dzogchen or Mahamudra is the best. There are other forms out there. Advaita is one. But I am very highly appreciative of the elegance and the philosophical underpinnings of Dzogchen and Mahamudra. I think they're they're unparalleled in the whole spiritual universe of non-dual teachings. One of the things that I most appreciate about their understanding is that while they honor the non-dual, they, which is the ultimate, kind of the pointing to the ultimate truth, always accessible here and now. You don't have to go through time, but in any moment you can open to the truth of the ground or rigpa, your version of it. That's the heart of the Dzogchen teaching. At the same time, it rests on a foundation that is a developmental path which talks about effort and progress over time toward a goal of liberation. It's this combination of the ultimate truth of the ground and the development over time representing the conventional understanding of spiritual practice. The union of these two is the height of Dharma wisdom. And any path that doesn't embrace both these is an incomplete path. In Zen, they say that once someone has achieved Satori, they need to wait ten years before they teach. That ten-year time is so that the practitioner can integrate the understanding of the ultimate level with the understanding of the conventional level. And until one has fully integrated, merged those two understandings so they're no longer in conflict, one spirituality isn't ripe enough to instruct others in in this view. There are some non-dual teachings which cling to the non-dual and use it as a platform to discredit the dual, to discredit the notions of development, progress, practice, time, refinement, etc., But the true understanding of the non-dual does not deny the dualistic truth. The conventional and the ultimate live right alongside each other, and they need each other. 
If we deny one, we miss something. It could be said that the, the dualistic vision of progress over time from defilement to liberation is the expression of compassion. The non-dual is the expression of emptiness, the wisdom that understands emptiness. Emptiness without compassion is, is cold. And compassion without emptiness is still entangled in samsara. So we need both. And the, uh, the systems of Dzogchen and Mahamudra, in my view, are the most philosophically sophisticated at explaining that mutual dependence. So they, they have very satisfying views in this way. Because of that, all the, all the relative practices are encouraged, as you've heard Rinpoche talk about. The development of faith and devotion, the development of love and compassion, the development of shamatha. All these practices are an integral part of the foundation that prepares one for realizing the ground, realizing the ultimate. So any cultivation that we do, let's just say for Vipassana practitioners in these main four areas of the wisdom of relating to all phenomena, the development of the heart through loving-kindness, the deepening of concentration through a samatha practice, and then the the non-dual of touching the ultimate. All these are four areas that we all need to develop in a lot. It's not like any of us have reached the peak of any of those four areas. So any time you spend developing any of those is time really well spent in your maturation as a Dharma practitioner. Now, which one is up for you at any given moment is up to you. It really depends on your looking into your own heart and and looking at two questions. One is, what do I really feel drawn by and inspired by? What's pulling my heart? And you just listen, and there will be different things at different times that do that. The second one is, what does, what does my heart and mind really need at this point? Where is my practice strong? Where is it lacking? As I'm looking at my current life situation, what are the strengths and what are the weaknesses in my kind of mental-emotional makeup right now? And then what style of practice would best balance that or bring up what is, what is low in that looking So that's mostly something that you can find out for yourself. And then having a conversation with a teacher to get their perspective can also be really helpful. So you don't need to wait for a month-long Dzogchen retreat to roll into town. There's lots of really valuable work to be done in the meantime. Also, if you can, please connect with a sitting group locally. The support of like-minded people is also invaluable. Dharma practice is going against the mainstream of this society. The Buddha said that himself. We are going against the current. Most of the society is in the direction of acquisition, having more, whether it be possessions or money or status or reputation or whatever. It's about more, more, more. And Dharma practice is in the opposite direction. It's about renunciation and giving up and giving away and becoming less and realizing emptiness. If we don't get the support of people who see things the same way, 
it's hard not to get caught up in the acquisition. It's hard to be in worldly life and not be influenced by worldly values. So the contact with like-minded people is so helpful for keeping our, our sight straight, keeping us aimed in the right direction. So if you can, please connect with a sitting group that's near you. I know that uh, Choki Nima Rinpoche has a group in the Bay Area. I've heard uh, Larry Garcia is a contact point for that group. There's a Dzogchen Lama in Sebastopol. Is that right? Casadero. Casadero, near Sebastopol. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so you could make an effort to connect uh, with him. There's a Mahamudra group. Is it in uh, Petaluma with Peter Barth? Petaluma with Peter Barth. And as most of you know, there are many, many Vipassana groups around uh, the Bay Area and the country. So please try to connect with like-minded people and stay, uh, keep the values in the direction of Dharma. Then I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the understandings that we take away from this retreat specifically uh, that are probably different than... uh, other practices you may have done, if you've done uh, other practices than Dzogchen or Mahamudra, some of the emphases are different. And I just kind of want to review some of what I think are the key points that were introduced during this week. I'm just going to be brief here. Um, The concept of Buddha nature, not only philosophically, but as, at least in part, a direct experience can make a huge difference in practice. Someone uh, I was talking to the other day said that it gave them really a new basis for feeling held and supported. To know it wasn't just the five senses, or the five senses plus mind and thought and emotion, but that there was something there that is holding all of us. Theoretical knowledge of this is one thing, but experiential knowledge goes a lot deeper. So being able to touch this in the practice of Rigpa gives a new basis for faith in life. And it's that faith that gives us the ability to surrender. It's to surrender into the flow of the Dharma, to let go of uh, egocentric uh, vision and intentions. Another thing that this practice highlights is the centrality of grasping. After doing... Rigpa practice for a while in my first retreat, I started to notice that what I was noticing wasn't physical phenomena, sound, sight, smell, taste, touch. It wasn't so much moods and emotions. What I was turning to again and again was whether the mind was in a state of grasping or whether it was in a state of freedom. This is the heart of the Dharma. This is the pointing of the Four Noble Truths. Grasping its cause, which is craving, the release from grasping, and the path to it, which is wisdom. So one way to look at this practice is notice if grasping is present. If it is, the ego is is present. Ego and grasping are synonymous. Then notice what happens when you can release. And then there's the the dropping in the seeing of, of Rigpa and the freedom in that. And not to get too idealistic about letting go of grasping and to think that it should happen easily. Ajahn Chah, who was a great, great teacher in the Theravadan tradition, said that 
70 to 80% of spiritual life is knowing that you're grasping and not being able to let go. <laughs> so if you feel that moment when you're, oh, oh, why can't it happen? Why isn't Rigpa today like it was yesterday? And you can't just release and be there. Know that you're in good company. Just one little tip on if you find yourself straining to Rigpa, I'm trying to recreate that. Body's leaning forward. I want that experience I had yesterday. Of course, that will block it. It might be simpler to go back to a simpler practice just to calm the mind, just for a few minutes. Go to the breath or body, even close your eyes if you like, and just feel a little bit calmer. And that might release the grasping. And then when you feel that release, then turn uh, to mind nature again. One of the beauties of this approach is the introduction to non-doing. Again, I think it's a very elegant way to present non-doing. It gives it a lot of great philosophical support. If you walked up to the man or woman on the street and told them, stop doing, they wouldn't have a clue how to go about it. And even meditators who have meditated for a number of years might not quite know how to go about it. But through this presentation, as you get close to non-doing, and close means the mind's oscillations have slowed down quite a bit, not so much swinging into past and future. That means some degree of shamatha is present, some degree of stillness. You're ready to move into non-doing. This really gives you a very elegant way to do it. So it suits very well that still time in practice. But it's also important to know that it also tells you when to make an effort. Non-doing is great and non-effort is great and it's beautiful when practice is effortless. But this teaching also says when we need to make an effort and that's when we're in what Rinpoche calls post-meditation which means that we've fallen out of Rigpa and we have gone into distraction or some form of grasping. Then we need to apply effort again and the effort is just to look. But still, it's a practice of non-effort that also highlights the importance of effort when needed. Now, where is effort not needed? When we're in Rigpa. Because any effort within that, as you've been discovering, will just disturb it, including the effort to prolong. So we start to learn this trust and surrender in the meditative state itself. When it's there, we, we accept it, and we don't try to make it be longer than it is. It's really just a way of opening without clinging to that meditative state that comes. This is really supported, or you could say enabled, by the factor of relaxation. So again, it's a really critical component of this whole path. As you, as you start your sitting, as you continue to turn and look, just continue to plant the seed of relaxation in the mind and the body. That's really what enables the Rigpa to open up. It opens up from a place of being relaxed and trusting. This is a quote from a, a Christian contemplative named Angelus Silesius. 
God is a pure no thing, concealed in now and here. The less you reach for it, the more it will appear. Could have been a Rigpa practitioner. The less you reach for it, the more it will appear. Rinpoche's teachings also have highlighted for me the importance of devotion. I was a very non-devotional practitioner when I encountered Rinpoche for the first time. I wasn't quite anti-devotional, but nothing in devotion had touched me before. And with him, it sort of came alive for me. Also, in those early years, we did a lot of Vajrasattva chanting. And it's a very beautiful mantra, and the, the image is you know, very striking, too. That became a doorway for me. And then I discovered a doorway within our tradition, which is the loving-kindness practice. Now, Rinpoche separates out faith and devotion from love and compassion, but there's one particular component of the metta practice I want to mention, and that is loving-kindness directed to the benefactor, which for me has always been a spiritual teacher. As I would do loving-kindness for the benefactor from a concentrated and meditative state of mind, I found that there was a, a, a fusing of our natures. I haven't done guru yoga, so I can't say it's the same thing that happens in the Vajrayana practice, the Tibetan practice of guru yoga, but it was definitely happening for me in the metta practice for the benefactor. This melding of uh, the benefactor's wisdom mind and my mind took place very strongly in that loving-kindness practice. Someone in an interview mentioned that they like the idea of devotion, but don't particularly feel it for any one individual, and asked if it was possible to be devoted to the Dharma. Absolutely. Some of you know this, this story of James Baraz, who was starting a course with Ramdas. This is in the mid to late 70s. Ramdas, of course, is a bhakti. James was coming out of having practiced with Joseph and in the insight mold. And Ramda said, I don't know if you're going to be enough of a bhakti for me. You know, what do you love? Do you love God? I can't quite say that. Do you love Jesus? It didn't quite work. Krishna? Not really there. Well, Ramda said, what about the Dharma? Do you love the Dharma? James said, yeah, I love the Dharma. Ramda said, okay, say it with meaning. I love, I love you, Dharma. And then uh, Ramda said it back to him. And James, he said, you're not getting enough feeling in it. Say it again. He said, I love you, Dharma. No, say it some more. It's not quite strong enough yet. He made James keep saying it until tears started coming out of his eyes, out of his love for the Dharma. So that was his bhakti relationship. But even before James Baraz, there was the Buddha. And in a passage in... I was wondering if anybody was listening. In a section of the Pali Canon, the Buddha says after his enlightenment, he was looking around for someone to be devoted to. He said, I surveyed all the ascetics and brahmins and wanderers and practitioners of the era. And if there had been someone more developed than me in concentration, 
I would have lived honoring and respected them and lived in dependence on them. I would have taken refuge in them and been devoted to them, but I couldn't find anyone. I looked to see if there was anyone more developed than I in virtue, in wisdom, in their degree of liberation, and I couldn't find anyone. So there was no one for me to live in that devotional relationship with. So I decided to live honoring, respecting, and in dependence on the Dhamma. That became his devotional focus. I really appreciate the pointing through the Dzogchen practice of where to look for the unconditioned. This had been a big mystery for many years in my practice. I was always told that it was beyond the six senses, but I had no idea where to look because I didn't know what was beyond the six senses. And to know that it's in the realm of, the, of awareness, that's the direction to look in, is a very big clue. It's a big clue. So that's a great refuge, even to know the direction of the unconditioned. So I think these are some of the key points that have shifted in my view or my understanding of practice out of my encounter with these teachings. They've enriched my practice a lot. And I hope these are some of the things that you'll be able to take home and continue to develop and work with. Now, in terms of how to integrate diverse practices, because most of you had some spiritual practice or practices before you came here, the great thing about uh, the Dzogchen practice is it integrates really well with other practices. I think Gerardo may have talked this afternoon about uh, combining it with visualization Early on in retreats, Rinpoche used to talk about, I'll give you his kind of standard format for a period of practice in in his tradition. He said it would start typically with taking refuge, the chants that we've done, an acknowledgement of bodhicitta to set the intention for the period, and then it might go into a period of visualization, visualizing a yidam with the mantra, And then at some point, I think this is what Gerardo talked about, you dissolve that image into the nature of mind, into emptiness, so that you know that the image is is fabricated. And then after that dissolving, one rests in the nature of mind with the energy of of that former practice. And then at the conclusion of the sitting, one dedicates the merit of it. So all along, as I've listened to Rinpoche's teachings, this has always been a piece along with other practices. In the same way, he's very open about recommending that we combine it with our Vipassana practice or Shamatha practice. The way that I like to think about it is very much the way that we uh, got into this retreat, starting with Shamatha with support, that is a simple object like the breath, moving to Shamatha without support, basically opening up the field of attention, and at that point, with some prior stability, moving into the Rigpa practice. For Vipassana people, I think the uh, spectrum of practices that this new practice offers is a very complete one. Because we can start with a simple object like the breath, develop stability of attention, move into a little more expanded attention with an intermediate field like the body, and combine both 
stability of attention with some understanding of the nature of things, uh, three characteristics as seen through the body. Then opening further with greater stability into the choiceless attention that relates with all phenomena equally. And then this adds one more practice in that open direction. As the stability of mind grows, that is an excellent platform for opening into Rigpa. So, for Vipassana practitioners, you can kind of think of it as the fourth step in a spectrum. Breath to body to choiceless attention to Rigpa practice. One of the things you'll definitely notice, and I'm sure a lot of you got a sense of it on this retreat, is how as your samadhi deepens, the vividness of the Rigpa gets much stronger. So as you went through these days, I know a few people mentioned it to me, wasn't feeling that much effect early on from the looking, but as the retreat went on and there was greater stability of mind, greater concentration, the Rigpa really became more evident, became easier to connect with and more vivid. So it may not have been the experience of everyone, but it has generally been my experience that as my samadhi has gotten stronger, Rigpa really wakes up. On the other side, just to prepare you for the other end of the spectrum, as you go home from this retreat, you may find that Rigpa is very alive for you uh, after the retreat. This was my experience. Then, as I stayed in daily life longer and my samadhi decayed little by little, which it will do, the vividness of the Rigpa became less. So the immediate recognition of it was harder, much harder over time. So be prepared that 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 might happen. What I did when that happened is that then not getting much of a response from the looking, I went back to uh, Vipassana practices. But, of course, uh, Rinpoche would probably still recommend uh, continue uh, continue with looking. So experiment with Uh, All your practices, see what works for you. Be pragmatic. I just want to touch on one point. There was a question earlier in the retreat about whether Rinpoche thought that people with Vipassana practice could open in in a significant and deep way to Rigpa practice. There was an interview with him in the Tara Mandala newsletter probably close to 10 years ago now. It was in the late 90s when he was teaching a Dzogchen retreat in the summer at Taramandala, which is a center in Colorado founded by Sultra Malioni. In that newsletter, he was asked whether he thought Vipassana practice was a good lead-in to Dzogchen practice. And he said in that interview he thought it was an excellent preparation for Dzogchen practice. So the interviewer asked him why. Why do you think it works well? His reply was that Vipassana meditators know very well how to meditate. They've learned technique really well. So when they come to Dzogchen, they pick up really quickly how not to meditate. That's an interesting comment. So in my experience, Rinpoche doesn't believe that there's a prejudice against us because we're Vipassana practitioners, but that it can, it can be very much to our benefit.
So I think the last thing I really wanted to say in terms of what to take home is this factor of trusting your own experience, which uh, talked about a few nights ago. Whatever you get when you turn and look, really trust that as your vehicle in the Rigpa practice and development of the view. Whether it's the deepest view or the final view or some standard of view, doesn't make so much difference. That, but that's the closest for your mind right now. And so that's what to follow. It's like if you're walking down the street in a neighborhood and you catch the smell of fresh bread really strongly in the air somewhere, you know that a bakery is not far away. And so if, you, if you're looking for the bakery, you can just follow that smell of the fresh bread It will lead you to the bakery. So as you turn and look, whatever you get is like the aroma of Rigpa. If it's not the authentic thing, it's the aroma of it. And as you follow that, it will lead you to the deeper experience, the authentic Rigpa, the direct realization, whatever you want to call it. It will lead you there. And again, a few people have expressed how they've seen that, what I would call development of the view, take place even during this retreat. So the important thing is to have confidence in that and follow it. If you smell the bread, but you walk the other direction, you won't reach the bakery. So really have confidence and follow that. That's your view. Okay, I think I just want to close by reading a quotation from the chant book that I don't think we've done yet. It's, a, it's called The Four Dharmas of Gampopa on page three. I think we'll chant it at the sitting tonight, but it really kind of sums up the whole of our endeavor. Grant your blessings so that concepts turn to dharma. Grant your blessings so that dharma turns into the path. Grant your blessing so that the past confusion is dispelled. Grant your blessing so that confusion dawns as wisdom. A good one to take with you. So, we have time for just two or three questions, maybe. Um, you all have listened to a lot of talk today, so give you an early night. Okay, at the very back. What is Mahamudra? Mahamudra is this, this teaching of Dzogchen. Did you all pick up the little sheets on the overview of Tibetan Buddhism? They were out in the foyer. They are out in the foyer. They, they have a translation from Flight of the Garuda on one side and an overview of Tibetan Buddhism on the other. The teachings we've been receiving are from the school called the Nyingma, the ancient school. And Dzogchen is integral to that lineage. Mahamudra is something of a practice and philosophy equivalent to the Kagyu school. Um, it's, a, it's slightly different in that I think it has a little more developmental aspect, but in the um, non-dual understanding, they're very, very close. Fern? Where would you put Ajahn Sumedho's 
sound of silence in this? Question is about Ajahn Sumedho's sound of silence. He's a Vipassana teacher who uses this sound, you know, the ringing in the ears that's a kind of steady background noise, uses it as a meditation object in doing Vipassana. I, re- I personally put that in the field of sound, in the, the sense base of sound. So I regard it as using one form of sound. Now through that, he, ha- he uses it and accesses emptiness, but as a meditation technique, I would put it in the sense door of sound. The experience that I'm having is, you know, when these windows are open and you can hear the stream out here? Mm-hmm. Since he told me about that, I feel like, like, like I have been infected with it. And mm. I wake up hearing it. I go to sleep hearing it. I hear it all the time. <laughs> the, the stream? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just like in the background all the time. It's like... like mm-hmm. It's like I can't not notice it, and, mm-hmm. and so I'm trying not to let it drive me crazy. <laughs> I, I swear I hear it all the time. I, I, I do wake up hearing it, and I go to sleep hearing it. Yeah. It could be a useful object. Yeah, I'm hoping so. <laughs> if, you know, when, when sounds get to have that irritating quality, it's good to kind of surrender for a while and make them a clear object of mindfulness so that we drop the resistance to them, and then having opened to them enough, maybe we can take our attention somewhere else. Either that or earplugs. Yes. That which practices? Jhana practices, yes, right. question is, um, why do jhana practices if they don't lead to liberation? It's the understanding within Theravada also that well, saying that they don't lead to liberation isn't quite the right way to say it. Is that one does not achieve liberation within the jhanas would be a more accurate way. Most people would understand it, although there are some passages in the Pali text that suggest that the jhanas can be used to develop insight also. But generally, the understanding is that the mind is too absorbed for insight to really flower in those states. So, generally, I would agree with that perspective. The main reason for developing the jhanas is just to deepen our level of, of samadhi. And samadhi is one of the factors of the Eightfold Path. It has to do with the unification of mind that makes the mind strong and stable because a strong, stable mind is the best platform for insight. And it's the wisdom that comes through insight that really liberates us. So it's creating a stronger platform for insight and wisdom to arise. I had a discussion with Rinpoche at the start of the retreat about the jhanas, and he asked me the same question. He said, why practice them? I explained that it was primarily to develop uh, as a platform for insight, he said, oh, it's just the same in our system. That's why shamatha practices are undertaken in his system also. Martina? Um, I just wonder if I understood right when you talked about um, in, a, in a different talk another night about inquiring into emptiness mm-hmm. on a conceptual level mm-hmm. so that we actually 
recognize the emptiness. Can you speak about that a little bit? Because I don't really, you, you mentioned like weight, you know, like emptiness of self and so on, but whatever it really mean, like on a practical level, I mean, how do you inquire in my daily life um, if I don't get really deep into meditation? You know, I, mm -hmm. like I would do in a, in a long retreat mm -hmm. into the conceptual idea of emptiness. Question is, I mentioned in a talk the other night that there was a value in a conceptual investigation into the quality of emptiness, practically how to do that, especially in daily life. I think I suggested three avenues then. One was the analogy of the mind as being like uh, vast space. So you can do a meditation that's based on that. When you sit in your daily life, just have the sense of the mind as being like vast space and all the objects arising and passing within it. So that unfolds in the direction of emptiness. Emptiness of self is equivalent to the Theravadan concept of anatta, or not-self. And that's, that's difficult to really get in daily life. That's more, to me, that's more of a retreat understanding. But the emptiness of objects is pretty accessible in daily life. So it might mean reading, reading some books that go into that. Nagarjuna is a great way in. And starting to just reflect on the readings. You know, it, it's all about deconstructing the solidity of the five senses, especially. I mentioned one way to deconstruct the sense of sight in that same talk. So go through each of the five senses and see how they can be deconstructed to see the insubstantial nature. And that, that will give you a good sense for the, um, the insubstantiality of the physical world. And then thoughts and emotions, maybe that's more of a retreat practice also. But just be aware that the same kind of flimsiness or mere appearance quality can be found in thoughts and emotions too. So it's something that you really can work on in daily life. And it will bear fruit. It's one of those things that you, you investigate for a while on the conceptual level, and then at some point in meditation, the experience comes and you recognize that's what the texts were pointing to. Okay. It's a good place to stop. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.